Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, Join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. What's going on, everybody? It's the Helping Friendly Podcast. We are here to discuss the year 2000, and, and back from the year 2000 is Matt. Hey, Matt. Howdy. How was 2000? Um, it was fantastic. There's all sorts of flying vehicles and uh, <laughs> world peace and no hunger, and it's awesome. <laughs> so uh, we're going to get into the episode in a few minutes. We have our installment of the Fall 2000 collaboration in partnership with Under the Scales and Beyond the Pond. And last week you heard Tom's episode featuring John Paluska and Andy. Um, that two-parter, Matt, did you 
Did you get a chance to listen to those? Any any takeaways from those? Did you learn anything? I did. Yeah, they were great episodes. Um, uh, Andy, as always, has great memories uh, from the '90s. Um, obviously, you know, somebody whose page, his web page, was so important to so many people in terms of getting information. So um, cool to hear from him, especially like when you talk about rumor mill about the the hiatus and things like that. Um, the John Beluska episode was fantastic. Um, I tweeted something when those came out about you know when we were putting together after midnight. Um, John's voice was one of my favorites to work with in the entire series um not you know that sounds weird not from an audio perspective but like the stories that he told the insight that he had um at this you know incredibly um exciting and shifting point in the band's history um so to hear him talk about like the you know the idea of going to the hiatus and what it was like working with the band at that point um it was just really fascinating and i, I actually took a lot away from it that um i hadn't expected uh to hear about including his um experience you know parting ways with the band a few years later um it was it was really really cool to, to hear all that and i assume you listened to both of those episodes as well yeah, and the the Gadiel, I mean, Gadiel's fish page, of course, is like you know for me one of my first fish memories, and and so that was really cool. And, and he was on the tour, so to hear his fan perspective was really cool. And he's so knowledgeable about fish. Um, but the Paluska conversation was just man. In After Midnight, I learned how how much he like protected the band's brand and values, and you know when he talked about you know, the, all the stuff that they did in the planning up to, to Big Cypress and, and before that. It's just interesting. It, it was a, it felt like it wasn't really just a business relationship that they had with him. You know, he was sort of their uh, channel to the, to the broad, broader music world, you know, so and you can tell that he still feels that it was just really fascinating. Yeah, I think he takes a lot of pride in what they were able to build uh, at that point in time. And um, it's glad to hear that he also, you know, one of the really cool things that he said was that he feels like the band is as good now as they were uh, back then, which, you know, it's tough to get a lot of fans who have been seeing the band for that long to to make that statement. So for somebody who, you know, was responsible for so much back then, but now is kind of out of the picture to be able to, to step up and say, listen, these guys are still making amazing music after all this time. That's a, a pretty huge statement. Statement. Yeah, and it takes a lot of courage, I think, because like I imagine if I like walked away from Osiris and then we kept making amazing podcasts, it would be hard for me to be really enthusiastic if I wasn't part of it anymore. You know, like it takes takes like a, it. It's just he seems like a good dude. Like he's like even though I I kind of sometimes wish I was still a part of it, I I still appreciate how great they are. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, or even you know, I think um, just to not fall prey to like an attitude of like a schadenfreude kind of thing where you're just like hoping that they fail or saying, oh, you know, it's not like it used to be or whatever. Like, I mean, that would be such a natural human reaction. And the fact that he doesn't even go there is uh, really speaks volume to, to his character, I think. And, and I would say the same doesn't go for a lot of uh, the 1.0 fans out there who, who won't, <laughs> who's, who's, who still live in the past. So don't, don't, you know, don't live in the past. Take a lesson from Paluska. Um, so next week you're going to hear Beyond the Pond. They're going to do a deep dive on the Phoenix G4J, which we're going to discuss in this episode as well, but they're going to go much deeper and obviously highlight some other music. And then the fourth week, we're going to bring you a special interview. Um, so all these episodes, of course, are going to be available on all the respective podcast feeds. So 
please, if you don't already, subscribe to Beyond the Pond and Under the Scales. And we hope to do this again, and we probably will do this again uh, shortly. So let us know what you think if you like this thematic approach. Um, and before we before we get into this, we're going to do our episode, which we recorded a few days ago. Um, it's going to be mostly focused on October 2000, but but some of broader 2000 discussion as well. We did a September 2000 episode in late 2018, which we'll link to in the show notes, um, which you should go back to at some point. But we're mostly focusing on this end of the tour, which is really, really interesting. And we have a special guest, Justin Bruce, who's been listening to 2000 for most of this year, I think, and has a lot of perspective and knowledge. And um, we all were on this, this episode, all four of us plus Justin. It was, it's amazing when everyone shows up. It's beautiful. Yes, and everybody did their homework and was uh, ready to to, ha- to share opinions and and whatnot. It was yeah, it was great, really good discussion, especially with Justin, who um, uh, very in case you didn't know, Justin's a, a broadcast uh, meteorologist at the ABC affiliate in Las Vegas, so does a great job of presenting his opinion in a really um, well spoken manner. And uh, he's you know d- he dived really uh, deep into um, not only two thousand but nineteen ninety nine. So he's got a great kind of um, perspective for where the band. Was was at it, uh, at that period in time. And I guess we should say, um, we, we did ask for people to send their fan memories of the fall 2000 tour and we were keeping track of them. There, there's a few that I would, I just want to mention quickly. Um, and thank you all for submitting these and thank you the all listeners to, for, for responding. Um, Michael Callahan said, uh, this is on Twitter. It was working as a cook in Philly, heard rumors of the hiatus. My license was suspended. I snagged a single to Hershey, drove 100 miles with no license, slept in my car at the Hershey campground to not tempt fate driving back at night. Still my last live show, just past 20 years, had to be there, which is kind of awesome. That's a great uh, 1.0 story. Yeah. Um, that, that, was, that was supposed to be your first show. One of the many, well, I'll share the story in our, our discussion <laughs> with Justin, but yes, ma- many attempts to, to see the band that never got off the ground uh, in 1.0. <laughs> Another another common 1.0 story from uh, the username I shit music, which is great. Um, <laughs> got arrested at Blossom along with 140 other folks in a big undercover lot sweep. Spent three days in Akron County Prison, where all the heads still in there from Buckeye '94 were like, "You guys are here <laughs> from Fish. They're the band now. How did that happen?" <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but. It, can you imagine you go to jail and like there's all there's all the deadheads have been in there for for six years um and then uh a really really awesome set of memories from urban hiker sf um with a bunch of pictures um she sent uh some favorite favorite memories from uh september 17th show a picture from albany and um another picture from some lot pictures which which just bring back memories there's a lot of patchwork a lot of uh you know patchwork dresses and pants and uh that was that was 2000 for you um and then finally uh story of the goats um, who is is a is a follower of ours? This is this is my favorite. Uh, my roommate at Penn State won Hershey tickets that fall in a radio station. Quote: What would you do for fish ticks contest? He was willing to have 100 gallons of baked beans dumped over his head in front of the student bookstore. Great show, better friend. And there's a picture of his friend covered in baked beans. 
That is amazing. I didn't. So as you'll hear, uh, Justin and I share, we were both at Penn State at this point, um, and I didn't know about the contest or this whole baked beans thing, which I would have, even if I didn't go to the show, I would have loved to have seen that. Uh, I mean, that that would have been pretty incredible. Um, I love some of these pictures that people were sharing uh, that you mentioned, the patchwork dresses and pants and um, everybody wearing T-shirts that are big and boxy and like completely formless, which is amazing. <laughs> Cargo shorts being worn like without any sort of, you know, guilt because you've been shamed of, you know, that wearing cargo shorts is like not appealing to women or something like that. Like the, the, the hemp necklaces, I mean, come on, man. Um, and then this guy has like, as you probably have, look at this picture. He has like the generic college hat that every single college student at the, around that time wore that had like, it's a white hat with like your school's initials and like every single, yeah. you were like issued one when you went to college in the yep. late nineties, early two thousands. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. I had one of those, man, for sure. It's awesome. We got, yeah, we got to post a link to this picture. Cause this, guy this guy did his work to get to get those Hershey tickets um all right so we're gonna go back and and jump jump through this end of fall 2000 tour um before we do that we have to talk about a couple of our sponsors uh first of all we want to thank Grady's Cold Brew for being a sponsor and we want to tell you that Jonathan got very jacked on Grady's Cold Brew the other day it's happened to all of us and we want to tell you again about about how delicious it is. And some people will drink cold brew throughout the winter. I think I might, but you can also drink Grady's hot. You can use their concentrates, the ground coffee or the bean bags to make hot coffee. Matt, are you going to switch to hot in the winter? Or are you going to keep drinking the cold brew? I don't know. I mean, I, I love cold coffee year round. I mean, especially in the summer, but, uh, I don't know. We'll see because, you know, I'll be home now. Like, it's not like going to an office and you go and get your cup of joe, you know, from the break room and socialize with friends and stuff like that. So I think having that Grady's in my refrigerator, I might be tempted to, to stick on it. But man, we've been on the cold brew train ever since we started getting the Grady stuff. It's it's amazing. I got myself and my wife on it just, um, you know, making that stuff. And, and it's amazing that we can both kind of like use the concentrate to make it to our own preferred strength. Uh, she'll heat it up. I'll keep mine cold but it's, it's awesome. It's like a great thing to have in your refrigerator all the time. Yeah. It disappears very, very quickly around our house. Um, and, and Grady's, uh, there's going to be a discount for you. Uh, I think it's 20% off if you use the code HFP 20. Is that right, Matt? That makes sense. Yeah. So when you go to Grady'sColdBrew.com, <laughs> use the code HFP 20 for 20% off your offer and start getting jacked on Grady's coffee. It's delicious. All right, one more sponsor, and then we're going to get into the show. One thing I'm coming to realize, Matt, is that we're going to be wearing masks for a really long time. I th kind of thought it was like a temporary deal, but it's not. I think it is, and uh, so I think it's time to probably diversify. Um, <laughs> and if you haven't gotten some of the Section 119 masks that we're already talking about, it's a great time to do that so that you can represent, uh, you know, pretend that there was a fall tour going on or something like that. Yeah, you can't wear your you can't wear your donut shirt from Section One Nineteen. As as beautiful as it is, you're not going to wear it to the fish show. So you might as well uh, you might as well get some masks and 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 help out, you know, help support your band by showing people. I, I swear, I'm seeing these more and more. I, I saw someone today. I've seen. I saw a couple of people over the weekend. I feel like I'm seeing more of these, and maybe they're all using the HF Pod uh, discount to get their masks. Do you think so? 
I'd like to believe so. I definitely agree with you. I, I'm seeing a shift where like when I was going out uh, earlier, seeing a lot of sort of like homemade uh, donut mm -hmm. pattern masks and things like that. And um, everybody seems to be stepping up their game. I'm seeing a lot of Section 119 masks among other sort of fashion forward masks. So, um, you know, don't don't be an anti-masker. Lean into it. Accessorize. Make it make it part of your wardrobe. <laughs> Accessorize. Um, you also can check out what the other stuff Section One Nineteen has. They have a bunch of bunch of cool dead and and donut related material. And um, you know, if you need some new threads, check out. Go to Section One Nineteen dot com and use the promo code HFPOD um, to get twenty percent off your order. All right, Matt. Is there anything else we should say, or should we let people listen to this episode? Um, get your time machine ready. Get ready to go back to that first week of October of 2000, which was a crazy week. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the music world were talking about this in the last couple of weeks. Um, in like four days before Fish uh, ended 1.0, uh, Kid A came out. This is like the crazy, like changing of music uh, period of time. So it's uh, cool to go back and, and look at that. Um, definitely recommend listening to this entire week of shows. If you've got the time, um, watch the live in Vegas DVD. DVD, which has the amazing footage from Phoenix as well. And, um, you know, just take yourself back mentally that to that, uh, that period in time. Awesome. Enjoy. And thank you all. And, and tune in next week for beyond the ponds take on this, uh, this Phoenix gen that you'll hear us talk a little bit about, and, uh, we'll see you all soon. Enjoy the conversation. We're here with our special guest, Justin Bruce. Hey, Justin, how you doing, man? Hey, guys, doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's so nice to talk to you. We are here with a full crew: um, Jonathan, Brad, Matt, myself, Justin, and Justin. We are excited to talk to you about this special episode. This is part of our broader collaboration with the other Fish Podcasts, as, as we said in the intro. So it's cool to have you here because you did some kind of massive listening project. Did you listen to every show of 2000? Uh, I started in 1999, which was when I saw my first fish show at Star Lake. Uh, I saw a couple more in 2000, but I was just a late 1.0 noob who didn't know what was going on. So I thought, let me dot my I's and cross my T's and listen to everything in 99 and 2000. And I'm pretty much wrapped up. I still need to tweet out reviews of fall 2000, but I've, I've heard everything. And so I know that some of us saw shows on that tour and by some of us, I mean, not me, but maybe some of you guys, um, Jonathan, did you see some shows that tour? I mean, I just saw Merriweather. I think, uh, I think that was it for me, Matt. I got married that Matt, year. I Matt was wasn't busy. there yet. I wasn't there, but um, as Justin and I discovered uh, through a Twitter exchange a few weeks ago, uh, the Hershey show should have been, it's one of the many attempts that I had at it being my first show. And I was a f new freshman at Penn State who, as I've shared on the program in the past, um, I had some friends who told me, older friends with a car who were fish fans, who told me that they would give me a ride to Hershey and they had a ticket for me and everything. And then they ghosted me and um, didn't pick me up. And I found out just a few weeks weeks ago that Justin drove down from Penn State uh, by himself. So there's some sort of like time travel situation there that we should have uh, we should have met up and, and gone together. But it, it was not to be. I had no friends who liked fish throughout my four years in college, <laughs> which is really a, a, an accomplishment. So I wish we could time travel, invent Twitter and, uh, and go to Hershey <laughs> together, Matt. There you go. <laughs> by the way, did you guys know, I think and this is retro too, because Justin's been on the show before. 
um, Justin is, I, to the best of my knowledge, unless somebody's hiding something else from us, the first Emmy award-winning uh, person who's ever been on our show. So we're in uh, we're in esteemed uh, company wow. here right now. Yeah, I, I, I left the Mid-South Regional Emmy for tornado coverage downstairs, but I can, uh, <laughs> I can go grab it if you guys want to check it out. <laughs> that sounds like heavy lifting, man. We don't we don't put anybody through that on our show. Awesome. <laughs> that is great. That's better than Brad's Emmy, which he can tell you about. But I, I mean, that's awesome. I think that's really cool. Hey, K- Katie Turrball's in your court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, guys, there's a lot that happened in fall 2000. We did an episode on September 2000 um, in late 2018, and we're going to mostly focus on October. But um, there's there's something very strange about these shows, particularly the October shows. Um, we went back and listened to, to most of them. Matt, is there anything that you heard throughout the October shows that, that stood out to you or that you like were surprised by? I wouldn't say that I was surprised by it, but they sound tired. Um, you know, we talked about September in the past and there's some ups and downs throughout that month, but there's some really solid shows. Not that there's not any solid shows, um, in this, you know, last little run. Um, there's one in particular we'll talk about that I was pretty fond of. Um, but they, after Vegas, they sound really gassed. Um, and they sound like they're kind of struggling to, um, you know, uh, make something happen each night. So I think that was kind of my general takeaway that, you know, if you, if you look at this narrative of them sort of needing to take a break you know it's it was probably true that they needed to take a break at this point i have uh had conversations with people who did these shows as fans who did these shows and the story is pretty universal particularly those who did the whole stretch from from vegas through the end that um sleep was not a regular thing and um yeah, people were burning it at all ends because this was this could from their perspective this could have been it. And so they were they were going for it. And um yeah, I, I, I agree with your your assessment that fish sounds like they're kind of running out of gas or I, I think I wrote somewhere it's a little like the uh last gasp, uh, you know, maybe you're three quarters of the way through a race. Uh I, I have done foot racing in my past and, and I know this what this is like and it's yeah, you don't you don't have it, and they they do they pick it up for the finish line, but uh, it, there's some struggle here. As the as the eternal optimist, I think that <laughs> um, I think that to me, I took away that they were really good at um, just going through the motions. Because if the, if these shows are them being tired and kind of going through the motions, or just kind of going on, you know, instinct or or um, whatever's embedded at this point. Um, I still enjoyed them a lot. So, Yeah, and John Paluska mentioned that in that interview with Tom uh, from Under the Scales from last week that, you know, even when they seemed to be, like, taking their foot off the gas, they still were working really hard and coming through like crazy. I mean, this we'll get into some of the jamming, but, man, some of it's, like, pretty intense for a band that's exhausted, which is which is a whole thing that we need to talk about. But, Justin, before we do that, do, does, do the October shows seem different from September? And, and do you have things from September that you want people to go back to before we start talking about how tired fish is for the next 40 minutes? Yeah, I've got a handful of uh, September highlights. Uh, and I do think that a couple of the October shows and, and we'll discuss them show by show, but I have two of the October shows kind of rated 
period toward the bottom of fall 2000 as a whole, which is, you know, kind of the opposite of conventional wisdom where a fish tour starts a little slow and then kind of ramps up and hits its stride. Uh, but going back into September, I think uh, September 8th, uh, which I'm pretty sure is the, the tour opener, the ghost, uh, it's great. Uh, up, upbeat hose, which is, is kind of what fish was up to a lot in fall 2000. Uh, do you guys know, I'll put you on the, on the spot here, uh, San Jose, because it's literally teased in like every other fish show throughout the year 2000. But you're familiar with what it is? Previously known as the fat man in the little coat lick before somebody identified it as San Jose, right? Oh, yeah. I've heard that. I've heard that before. I had seen San Jose and, you know, a million fish set list and finally like looked it up and was like, who is this Freddie King guy? And whatever the album is that it's on, I think it's let's dance and hide the night away or let's hide and dance the night away. But he's one of the the three Kings of the blues uh, up there with Albert and BB. And uh, it's just this great little rhythmic kind of, kind of lick and Trey is teasing it all the time throughout the year 2000, but this ghost from nine, eight, it's kind of San Jose influenced, although it's not even noted on the set list, just a heads up to, uh, to the .NET folks. Uh, so that's one. I think uh, the uh, rock and roll from MPP, which is my favorite show of the whole tour, 917 is just a rager. The rock and roll is great. And it's only 15 or 16 minutes. The first 10 minutes are pretty standard, but the last five minutes, kind of delicate, uh, melodic, uh, majestic. It's not that like intense piper jamming that maybe you think of when you think of fall 2000. Uh, another unsolicited suggestion would be the Reba from Rosemont, 922. Uh, 2000 was like the year of, of Reba. I think it was only played maybe like once or, or, or twice across 1999, uh, but they played it a decent amount. And the Rosemont Reba, it's kind of grounded and, and, and gritty and, and Trey's tone is almost like 2.0-ish. Kind of reminds me of Winter Tour of 99, which is an awesome tour but check the Rosemont Reba out. The Bonner Springs Tweezer, which you guys have talked about on this show from 925. Uh, it is amazing in that it is like a big slice of the 1216.99 Raleigh Tweezer, which is probably my favorite fish jam of all time. Um, but apparently they got to, to Bonner Springs and they said, let's do that again. <laughs> like, you know, 10 months later. So check that out. And the last one, uh, the Piper from 927, which everyone calls Fiddler's, Fiddler's, Green. Fiddler's Green, but it's in Denver. Let's just, <laughs> it, I, I'm just going to call it Denver, but the Piper is great. Piper did everything in 2000, um, but this one's kind of upbeat. Uh, Trey's like a little slinky. It's not like a pedal to the metal Piper, like, like Hershey on 915 or like the patient. Let's see what happens uh like on uh, september 11th um but yeah those are five jams that i would recommend people check out sweet thank you man then and i'm sure that people have heard some of those maybe not all of them but there, there's a lot there and some of them i think thematically work with with some of the stuff we're going to talk about um and i guess the the we, we can't really go into october without talking about vegas because the show we're going to talk about first was sunday october 1st and Matt's uh, first note on that show is is about the night before, which was a Saturday night. I guess the, the previous two shows were Friday, Saturday in Vegas, and then somehow they made it Sunday night to Phoenix to play a show. I mean, that's a that's incredible. I mean, they were in their mid thirties, you know, younger than younger than we are. But 
I can't imagine what I understand about Vegas going into this. Like, can you imagine <laughs> that they like traveled and then played a show the next day? They didn't have to drive at least. That's true. They didn't yeah. have to drive. They, they probably didn't have to do much and they probably didn't sleep very much. But Matt, what, what happened in Vegas and how did they get here to play a show the next day? Seems impossible. It does. It, although, you know, I guess if they left the show, uh, they have a dri bus driver. They can do whatever they want. They can keep the party going on the road. I don't know if that's what they did or if they, you know, stayed through at Vegas and just happened to roll into Phoenix like right before showtime or whatever. The one thing that um, cleared it up for me a little bit, somebody – and I apologize because I forget who this was on Twitter a couple weeks ago or in the, at least in the past week pointed out that the – um, Les Claypool show that Trey was at and sat in. There was like a little oyster head set in there, which is commonly attributed to be late night after that show on the 30th. Um, was actually probably late night after the first night, the 29th. Um, yeah, early morning on the 30th would be, which is why it right, would be right. as such. So it's a little bit it's a little bit murky on fish.net because when it says like this is after the previous night's show, it links and it actually links to the show on the 30th. Um, it also erroneously says that Les and Trey share a birthday, which is not true. Les's birthday is the day before Trey. So it seems like the timeline was they played the show on the 29th, Kid Rock was there. They it was Les's birthday. Trey goes over to Les's show, rages all night. There's pictures of Trey and Kid Rock at the casino at God knows what hour doing God knows what what they were doing then they play the show on the 30th and then somehow after the show on the 30th they wind up in phoenix so um all that said that the surprising thing to me is that you would you would probably not blame them for being exhausted in phoenix um when in fact that's actually i think one of the strongest shows of the week and it probably has the my single favorite jam of the entire fall 2000 tour in in the second set Justin, what, how does this show stack up? I think that it's a pretty good show, and and I agree that um, set two is is probably has the most flow of of almost any any set in uh, in the whole fall tour. Although, I would give the edge to uh, that MPP show. That set two is just off the charts, um, but. I had the the Live in Vegas DVD as a young fan, and you know the 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 Piper Guy Forget uh, was bonus material, and I just ate it up. I didn't even realize that uh, this was the debut, uh, the show debut of Guy Forget in Phoenix. I just thought oh, it must be a thing that they play all the time, but it's phenomenal. It's just uh, it's it's great because it's it feels really spur of the moment. Uh, as they as they go from Piper into into Guy Fourchet, which is always exciting.
And we heard from Tom's interview with uh, Andy last week that this was, uh, I guess, one of those songs that that Fishman thought was very, very bad, um, like Hold Your Head Up or other things that then Trey brought to the fore when when he wanted to to mess with Fishman, which makes a lot more sense now. I don't think I knew that before I heard that, but maybe you guys did. But Matt, do you think that um, that jam, like what is it about that jam? Because it's not super long, but I think people always point to that jam as a top jam of the of the year. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And I, I came to it from the same angle as Justin mentioned, um, getting that, that Vegas DVD and seeing it. It's the best thing on the whole DVD. Uh, it's, it's incredible. I think, you know, when I look at that jam, the segment going from Piper into Guy Forget is really kind of like the best example encapsulation of like where they were at in 2000. Um, they start out with the 99 style of just kind of like building these sheets of sound, lots of distortion. Trey was doing this thing then when um, his loops, the he was using had shifted from doing the whammy thing where he had those like meow meow loops um to being like distorted chords it was almost like he left the looper on for a really long time and everything he was playing was just like building on top of itself um it turns into this like you know loud uh cacophonous kind of sound but then they drop down fish is like really grooving on the ride symbol and that's when they kind of slide in to the the Guy Forget section um that that part right there you hear that throughout a couple of different areas in 2000 another great example is the Atlanta tweezer um they do a very very similar thing they do Guy Forget and then afterwards it's got this awesome spacey uh jam afterwards where fish keeps singing the the Guy Forget lyrics and um it, you know I think the whole thing is about like 25 or 26 minutes long um it's a it's a really really great solid segment of playing doesn't lack for energy which is i think something that definitely is lacking at, at points throughout this this whole week of shows yeah i i gotta say i'm just kind of glad they stretched the bowie a few seconds longer because if guy forget which is you know barely a song was the longest song of the night that would be it'd be weird i mean i'm okay with it because if it's going to be that good then go for it. But I think the song selections are pretty good on this show. Um, although I know people at the time didn't love vultures. I think there are still people who don't love vultures and I don't, I can't explain them. Uh, but it, it's kind of a short show. Each of the sets clock in at just over an hour. And, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think they sound tired, but they're acting tired. Does that make sense? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, um, there's a, there's a Billy Breathes, which is a little bit sloppy, and uh, and In Law Josie Wales, and like it, that's like the nap portion of set one. So anybody who did Vegas and survived the nap section of set one, like they they deserved the uh, the jams in set two, I guess. Um, but yeah yeah, I mean they they had a half hour of playing ahead of them after the Guy Forget. Um, and managed to pull off a Bowie that peaks. Uh, and it's pretty, it's, it's good. It's fun. I like the show. Anyone who's gone to a show with Jonathan, you know, he, there's a nap section that he, of every show and he, <laughs> he gets out his sleeping bag and it's really, you have to be careful not to step on him, but it's good because he comes, <laughs> comes back in the second set ready to rock. Well, luckily, um, luckily for Jonathan, the, the in-law Josie Wales was in set one. So everybody got their rest in early as right. opposed to <laughs> right. like most of the time in 2000 when it was the middle of, of set two, kind of unsolicitedly giving everyone a breather. 
but uh, yeah, <laughs> nice to get a rest when you're uh, when you're of our age. That's a good opportunity to point out too. This, you know, as a reminder, this is an album release year, so a lot of these set lists yep. are kind of like, you know, this is a great example. This show starts out with first tube, as a lot of shows in 2000 did. Um, you had a lot of in-law Josie Wales at this point, a lot of Pipers, which though it had been around for a few years did you know wasn't on an album until farmhouse um uh there was a lot of those kind of weird set list moves that you see in an album release here because they're trying to steer things back to the the new material brad did you did you like going back to the show this is your future home you weren't there at the time obviously but um did you it seems like i wonder if this would being the day after they said or i guess two days after they said they were gonna take a hiatus like i wonder if this was the uneven kind of like set list and the sort of like choppiness of some of this is is a result of everyone the audience i mean i, I assume that crowd energy must have been a little bit different than it was in vegas now knowing that we're on the path to the last however many five fish shows of it in some time do you think about that listening back i've made the drive home from vegas to phoenix you know in the morning and um although it's only five hours it can seem like forever so with kid rock or not yeah it was actually a tour bus and i wasn't driving but you know whatever so (laughs) um but um i get it i get you know jonathan pointed out the lengths of the set you kind of understand that it's also desert sky pavilion which you know later turned into you know who knows a mattress pavilion and now you know like sleep train and all those things um it's not it's not in the best part of town it's not an exciting place um it's not a great venue um but i i like the show i thought i thought the second set um was actually pretty good it's short like we talked about but the roses are free hits piper hits piper's intense for a short little bit like six minutes or whatever it is and then as matt pointed out the specifics of that uh transition into into the jam is is really good um and i'd also point out that this is the first david bowie of three the first of three in five shows i mean they played every other night or every other show in this october little five show run so that's pretty cool so there's do we need to talk about the the 10 three appearance um on the tonight show with jay leno it wasn't a show but could, do we have to talk about it i think matt had a, a a good comment about it. In remember the Jay Leno? <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching this and they, they played twist. So, you know, this is back to the album release thing. Um, the album promotion stuff, which once again, going back to, to Tom's interview with John Paluska, um, you know, he had called it out. They did a lot of promotional appearances throughout the year. Uh, the, the whole year started off with them basically doing a run of radio shows, um, and stuff which like was, that, which was so great to listen to at the time. So, you know, the scheduling around this for the next couple of days and leading into the next show is strange to me because it makes sense to me that they would have a day off built into the schedule here before they play on the Tonight Show. A, because it was a Monday and they don't tend to play Mondays after they've played three nights in a row over the weekend. But also, um, you know, let's have a day off uh, before we go and play on national TV. Let's actually get some sleep. Let's let's look well rested on TV. Um so they do that, you know, it's it's fine. But then they play right the next night, not a far drive, uh, Chula Vista. So, you know, what's San Diego from L.A.? Like an you know, hour and a half mm. or something like that. So they don't have far to go. I wonder if they had even, like, they probably just stayed in the same hotel and just, like, you know, bust down and back or something like that. And, um, you know, 
I don't know what you guys think about this show, but I, to me, I think it's like by far the weakest show of this entire week. Mm. And they sound just exhausted to me. I mean, there's just not much that stands out to the show at all. I mean, just Justin, what do you think? I, I think not only is it the weakest show of October, but uh, I sort of have it as the second weakest show of the whole tour. Talking about Chula Vista 10-4, uh, it is up there with the uh, the Minneapolis show is just kind of feeling mailed in. I mean, it's not sloppy. It's not, you know, there aren't any like glaring errors. It's just, just feels a, a, a little mm. uninspired. And, you know, when you look at the middle of set two and you've got sample, Jabu and bug, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not unheard of to have a Jabu in set two in 2000, of course, it's not unheard of to have a bug in set two in late 1.0 either, but it's just uh, feels a little, little tuckered out. Jonathan, I liked your, your feeling about this with the <laughs> yeah. the songs and the, and the sequence and what they were trying to uh, communicate yeah. to, to the fans. I, th- I think the show could be summed up with it's cool. Um, it's cool. You know, R- Moma's cool. Reba's cool. Antelope's cool. Rock and roll. Cool. 2001. Jabu. Hood. I really like the flurries of notes, like in that hood. There's like edit the eight minute mark. Trey is just hitting some stuff that is actually very cool. But um, and the Reba is nice and good. They do like Dog Face Boy instead of whistling. There's a little bit of a kick down with the Dog Face Boy, right? I suppose. <laughs> uh, rock and roll is hot, but doesn't really lift off. Um, and this is where you know I got that real impression of the uh, gasping towards the finish line kind of thing right here. Like maybe they're just like, man. Um, well, tour's almost over. Let's play Hood. Um, so it's not bad. It's just not as elevated as other things, I think. But folk, I really like that Hood. Yeah, ho- folks thought, should definitely search out that Hood, Brad. I mean, I, yeah. I think it almost feels like a little bit of an apology at the end of uh, at the end of, of the set. But Trey is on fire. I mean, I thought the Hood was great. city without its music. The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. 
Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I think, you know, looking at the set list, and uh, maybe just because I'm spoiled by live fish releases, but you just have to assume that this show would be better if it was a rock and roll and then it was into the Chula Vista jam. You know what I mean? I think that would make the set list better. Uh, But, you know, the 11 minute 2001s, people pine for now. Uh, But then I I think if you showed them this one, you'd be like, they'd be like, oh, yeah, now I know why they don't do them anymore. (laughs) Uh, Not that it's bad, but this is kind of... Um, it was, it, it made cool. a little, yeah, it's cool. It's cool, yeah. man. Yeah. I mean, the antithesis of the Harry Hood is the Reba in the first set where Trey, it seems like he barely plays, um, which is odd for a 2000 Reba. I mean, a, a, a 1.0 Reba, you'd expect Trey to just be like on fire and he really lays back. He just doesn't do a whole lot. And there's, that actually happens like a couple times throughout this run. It's like the character zero we'll talk about from, um, you know, a couple nights later, it's like, he just like just doesn't play he just like lays spoilers back. spoiler sorry don't <laughs> don't skip ahead there's one other example uh from from bonner springs on 925 where trey also is like you know what i'm actually gonna gonna sit back and that's in the hairy hood uh in bonner springs where you're like where is where is the dude uh like he's he's not playing sure he didn't go off the stage like like drums like he like put his guitar down and kind of meandered off the stage for a little bit <laughs> where's with maybe he thought it was the drums in space or something um so okay so this is you know at the, at this show there's they're seeing that they have three shows left i mean i guess my question is is this like a everyone was just raging and partying in this era and on this tour and ran out of gas is this when like the emotions start kicking in where you're like oh man this is like pretty intense to play these shows because we have only a few left and then apparently we're taking a break which we just told people about two days ago like is this does anyone have any theories on yeah they can see it they can see it coming um i mean i i I can't crawl into their heads but again just talking to people who were doing the shows and they were feeling the same way they were definitely like highs and lows of like this is awesome we're having a great time and oh shit it's about to end you know it it kind of keeps coming at you um yeah the the interesting thing to me when i i kept thinking about as i listened to these shows was that think about the end of like that last run in in 2.0 um in august which is it's interesting that we're just like segmenting i try not to <laughs> but it, i mean like we it's it's kind of cool because like we segmented this week off of the end of the tour which there was no break i mean it's one full tour whereas like that last the tour in 2004 they had like the june tour and then they had like a week of shows in august and then coventry which is a was a very very strange schedule to begin with but that whole last week which was essentially like the end week even though they were like not playing great most of the time and they were like you know there was it was very sad and people were kind of like coming to terms with the end of it and everything like that probably in a little bit more of a concrete way than in 2000 where it was more ambiguous like okay yeah this could be the end but like we probably think they're going to be back they were trying stuff every night 
and they were trying like kind of nostalgic things um, and it didn't always land. And sometimes there were musical things that they tried and they didn't work out well. Sometimes there were jokes and they didn't work out well. Like re remember at Great Woods when Trey like almost threw his guitar into the audience and he was like, I'm not going to need this anymore. And it was a very cringy moment. There's nothing like that during this week. Like there's no nods to the past. They're not really like, except for the Guy Forget, they're not like busting out crazy songs or anything like that. The Bobby sit in, in at Shoreline is like kind of, you know, what you'd expect to happen at that point, especially since Phil said in that week. And the last show is like, it's like a, it's like a straightforward show. So like there's, it's a, I get a completely different vibe from this week. And I think that's when I look at this show, it's not, it's not like they're not playing well, but they're like trying crazy things. It's like a run of the mill Wednesday night, like whatever kind of knockoff show. I mean, does that, does that make sense? It does, but I would argue that there is more there than what your comments are suggesting. They definitely saved songs. Um, they definitely sat on some and, and dropped heavy hitters on the final show, which we'll get to, of course. Um, they were approaching it differently. They were certainly, I think even for them, it was, you know, it was into the unknown, but it was not officially absolutely the end. And in 2004, it was, this is it. And, and it was a very different feeling for a lot of different reasons. Um, I was, I did, I didn't go to Coventry, but I went to like the Hampton show that I, I won't, I don't normally speak of. And, um, yeah, it was, it was heavy, a really heavy all around. Um, and just, that was a very different thing. It was, uh, it was less heavy now than I think in 2000. And I think to Matt's point, if this had been planned, maybe there would have been, at least in 3.0, there would have been five, sh five shows that were completely separate and maybe they wouldn't have had any repeats and it would have been more staged. Um, but maybe they didn't think this was the end and this was just a hiatus. Uh, but I also think the difference with what you're saying, Jonathan, in 2.0 is that they were still playing pretty well in, at the end of 1.0. You know, not to not to dump on 2.0, but you know this. There's still some good jams, especially in September, and then some here in October. Um, they were going out relatively on top, maybe on a on the back side of the hill, but um, 2.0 just had such. A, yeah, I mean, we've talked about it. Just bitter. Yeah, this was 10 months after the high note from, I think, their perspective, although they were still riding pretty high. On a positive note, um, the next <laughs> the next night in Irvine, Irvine, where, you know, I, I don't know much about Irvine, but I know it's a, just a, what a, what a, what a, what a city. Um, the, <laughs> sorry to anyone who's listening from Irvine. Orange County, I just know, what? The bustling metropolis like, of Irvine. I, I, People who've been there told me it's not great, but but this night in Irvine was okay. A Thursday night, October fifth. Um, it, it does seem like this things pick up a little bit here, but I, I do feel like the way you guys were just t talking made me feel probably how they felt, which was like, oh man, this is like we're we're getting to the end here, but 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 not the the actual end of fish. Although that could be debated, and no one knows really if they were like thinking that they would take a, a short break but this this show's pretty good um we should talk about the musical approach during this tour as well because we haven't really yet maybe with some of these jams um justin do you, justin do you want to start just with with your highlights of of the 10-5 show 
Well, I, I think, you know, set one, just you can look at the set list and kind of pick up uh, the vibe, like a chalk dust, Gaiuti, high energy start to the show, and then Wolfman's into Sneak and Sally and Limb by Limb. Uh, and come on, baby, let's go downtown, you know, a random Neil Young cover that they had played once before in September. But that is a super high energy song about scoring heroin, which probably is a little bit of a question mark, uh, but it's just high energy throughout. And then you actually get uh, some some jams that stretch out a little bit in set two. And it's it's upbeat. And, you know, you could say it's kind of kind of uh, rhythmic hose like a lot of fall 2000 was uh, like the drowned. Uh, it's it's high energy. And you get a little bit of shreddy tray in there to kind of round out the drowned jam uh, before you segue pretty, uh, pretty neatly into NICU. And then the rest of the set, you know, maintains that energy. There's lots to love here. Matt, can you tell us your take on the kind of jamming style in this, these shows? Because to me, it feels on one hand, very like slow and like I'm going to fall asleep, but also at the same time, like raging. And I don't know how those things coexist, but um, they seem to pull it off like show after show. Yeah, it's it's a mix of the I like Justin's term, um, the sort of rhythmic hose. Um, they get to like a very blissy kind of place a lot, but the, it's you have remnants of the '99 sound, the Big Cypress sound, the late at night kind of spacey thing. Trace Trace still has his um, his keyboard, so there's you know weird noises that come in to play and stuff. Um, this show I love. It's it's really energetic. Uh, this is probably my favorite show of the entire uh, week that we're talking about. Um, the flow is fantastic. Um, you've got some great segues, including the segue from Wolfman's into Sneak and Sally, from Drowned into NICU, from Haley's into Walk Away. Really, the whole second set, they never quit. Um, you know, you'd see like Drowned into NICU into David Bowie, which doesn't seem like it would be a real flowy kind of section. But um, one of the best parts is this, the sort of bridge that links uh nicu into david bowie like really spacey old school bowie intro so it's great i mean like all throughout i mean i i think i hear strong playing i hear you know quick playing i hear energy but they do have that sort of lingering spaciness from the last you know year year and a half of playing though that spaciness gets a bit much i i referenced this earlier the character zero i think is like the biggest WTF moment in the whole show. <laughs> Trey doesn't take a solo. Instead, um, I can't tell if it's him or Fishman starts quoting fast enough for you, which is very, very odd thing to do during a character zero solo. Um, but then even Stranger, at the end of it, during the big rock finish, Trey says, hey, hopefully we'll be back here soon. See you next time. And it's like, oh, so you're not really going away? Like, what is what is going on here? Um, so there's some weirdness at the end of the show. Yeah, but like, but otherwise, like, I, I think it's a fantastic show and one that I would, um, I wasn't actually that familiar with. As I'm sure I'd listened to it in the past, but not in detail. And I, this is one that I'll, I'll definitely go back to, I think, uh, a bunch.
understand how much fun we have playing in, in, uh, in your town in LA. And we feel very, very um, honored to be the fourth greatest rock and roll band in the world behind Tenacious D, Frank Zappa, and Van Halen. And to be playing in your town. So uh, hopefully we can come back again soon. And thank you. We really had a great time tonight. No kidding. And you are all a big part of this. And thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye bye. point out the limb by limb is kind of as i always do it's a little bit like you're falling down sometimes though it's not at least on the on the re-listen wasn't like a perfect sound for my ears it was it was it was fun though nice and long um i also think they were sitting on this walk away um as jonathan was saying earlier uh i think they they wanted to play this one of the last shows of of you know before the hiatus and here it is along with the encore while while my guitar gently weeps i think you got to throw that in there this is the second of the three bowies um within these five shows this one's nice this one's uh i think the longest of them um and um i think it's the second best i th- i think they kind of go in in chronological order here yeah this bowie is this bowie's great that i i think the first set is really solid i like that that wolfman sneak and sally is for the for the dancers you know how it always happens people are grooving on wolfman they drop into sneak and sally and everybody goes nuts mm-hmm. it's not very long but it's you know it's a good treat and um i i fucking love gaiuti so i don't, <laughs> I don't care what anybody says um but you the jams aren't super long on any of these things, um, but the Piper, my note on Piper is that it's a goddamn rocket ship. Like, they just blast the hell off on that Piper, and uh, that's just a lot of fun. The Bowie is pretty interesting, uh, you know, a great great tour for Bowie, but this one is unique in that there's like this little three-minute kind of major mode where it's it gets bright and it departs from a typical Bowie, and it's almost like what's great about 2,000 fish in a nutshell, like Trey's doing these trippy wah pedal things, you know, Paige is holding it down on piano, you know, Fish is obviously just a, a machine who's maintaining the energy and like dictating that, oh no, we're going to keep this peppy and we're going to keep this moving forward, and Mike's playing reminded me of uh, of McGrupp, so uh, search out the, the Bowie, I think, uh, more than almost anything in the 10-5 set two. You mentioned fish. I just have to say I did a lot of air drumming to this, and I'm not a big air drummer. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds you, there's a lot of people who listen to our show because people have commented that they, you know, people who got into the band in, in 3.0 and go back, and, and some people listen to us to talk about talk about these shows because they want to learn about 1.0, and this is a good moment to remind ourselves and everyone else that like it's crazy how intense david bowie was like up you know if, if you've only seen david bowie in 3.0 it's a it's it's Missing sort of a, it's a it's a shell of itself really like in terms of the intensity and the build-up and and just how much power and energy went into it but to me the bowie here is like the indication of how they can like put a ton of intensity into these songs i guess it's just like the layering of effects right while they're keeping it not it's not like it's like super high tempo raging but it's super intense um i don't know there's something about it it's also not bailing on the song after like six or eight minutes uh i think that makes a big difference True. As, as compared to the 3.0 ones 
And for me, I mean, uh, Bowie doesn't like really come together until Trey nails the ending trills and they're all like on the same page. It's, it's almost like a, a stash just for me personally. Like I need it to peak and I need it to, to peak hard and, and, and clean. It's the same with Bowie. You know, they played it in Phoenix a couple days before and it's it's really great. But the ending, the wrap up is like a little sloppy, but uh, they they more or less nail it here. The Bowie, it's funny, um, I'm recalling listening to this last, I listened to it as we're recording this last night on the uh, on the tw- 20th anniversary of the show, and I was taken aback because there's this long sort of jammy transition where they, they modulate to major, um, which is something that like these days they would do uh, in Bowie, and, and actually people may even accuse them of doing it a little bit too often, um, but now they, this is one of those like, back in the day they took their time today they just kind of know where they're going like now they would just like flip the switch real fast and modulate major whereas like in this bowie it sounds so unique for the time because it happens over the course of like probably three or four minutes where they get to this space i'm just remembering like listening to that and thinking wow this you know it sounds like a 3.0 bowie except like then it's not you know it gets back to the haunting darkness that they they used to be able to uh, to pull off it reminds me of um, twelve twenty nine ninety seven Bowie. I'm just kidding. I saw that on .net. <laughs> <laughs> it does have. Nope. The, nobody would have called you out on that, Brad. <laughs> no. yeah, you could have gone with it. But the major, the major key jams didn't happen like they do in three I think is the point, right? Like yeah. stash Bowie, any of those songs that go in and they go into the darkness, and now. Now it's pretty common for that to happen, but um, like you yeah. said, Matt, it's sort of a unique, unique thing. So, all right, two shows left. They go for a two-night stand at Shoreline, which, um, again, going back to the Tom Marshall interview with Paluska, 
he had said that like it was interesting to hear his reflection of the timing which was like this you know th- these were booked before maybe he knew that they were going to take a break which is interesting but also that like if they were going to take a break and had planned it out in that way maybe they would have uh done it somewhere you know in vermont or whatever um i don't know if that if you, I, I didn't ever think about that just because it seemed it seemed fitting to me that they finished in this two like the two show run out in the in the dead's country but um it makes sense that they wouldn't have planned that uh, jonathan as our resident grateful dead expert um because they're they're only my favorite band but i don't know anything about them tell us how you feel about about this show as a fish fan like is this is this a show you you go to um i haven't listened to this show in in some time but i i enjoyed it you know they come out guns blazing and carini the stash gets there in a, a bit more chill fashion than it might have you know I don't know what year is this, you know, six years earlier or whatever, but uh, it gets there. Uh, set two opens with heavy things. That's the tweet. Just, um, <laughs> But that said, I really like the arc in disease. It gets this nice, uh, quiet, spacey bit there before come, going back to ripping and a nice transition to Spock's brain, which is a solid bust out. Um, standard great sand. Um but the thing I think you're really asking me about is, you know, they're playing in Bill Graham's house, you know, they're playing at the venue that he's, they say, built for the dead or what have you. And really, we know he just needed an outdoor amphitheater. But um, yeah, Bob Weir comes out and, you know, that second set couldn't be any further from Grateful Dead music. Like there's for their entire career, people have kind of tagged this comparison to Fish to Grateful Dead. And they, the first two sets, both of those sets, you know, they're, they're nothing like Grateful Dead music. And then Bob Weir comes out and they play freaking El Paso, um, <laughs> which is actually, I really like it. Uh, Trey's solo on it is pretty cool. Um, but, you know, it's like, you know, that meme of the like confused, but kind of mildly amused guy looking at the camera like what? You know, that's me. Um, but then uh, then they play Chalk Dust. And I, I don't I wonder if Bobby just thought maybe he should sit down for a minute because he does not. He doesn't come through <laughs> on the tapes. He's not necessary no, he in the song. Um, and so that's weird. Uh but you hear them a bit on the end, you know, like you hear them in the beginning as they're trying to like get them kind of hooked on the groove there. And then you hear them at the end and then uh, they play West L.A., which is great. It's fucking cool. It's, you know, Fish playing a Grateful Dead song. And I, I'm in favor of that. Anytime Fish pl- wants to play a Grateful Dead song, I'm good. I'm in. That's cool. But uh, and so that worked for me. It's just weird. I'm not going to lie. It's it's, And I think that. The first set was short because they wanted to save time for this encore. And that's also weird.
Justin, you had the the luxury of looking at the whole year leading up to this. Is that, do you share that perspective? Are these the worst covers? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) It was was interesting because fast forward to 2016 and I was living in Nashville at the time and, and, you know, saw the next Bob Weir encore sit in with uh, the fish from Vermont. So it was kind of interesting to compare because they also played West LA Fadeaway in in 3.0 you got to meet trey at that right isn't that the same time yeah i actually yeah. i met him yeah. they played two nights in nashville in october and uh, i got to go to the bob sit-in was night one and i got to go to sound check uh before night two and i was with don hart and uh and and drew uh the tuba mike's second jam uh engineer uh <laughs> just just by by sheer luck. Um, but yeah, we got to talk to Trey for a long time and Trey was telling us of that Nashville encore, like, Oh yeah, like we weren't really planning on, on playing all the songs we played. Bobby just kept calling them out and we just kept playing them. <laughs> uh, but it was interesting to compare Bobby's voice in 2016 to, to in 2000. I think it sounds pretty great. Uh, it is interesting though. It's almost like uh, they had permission to kind of coast through set two, just to my ears because they knew that they had a big bang coming for the encore here, uh, you know, on the first night of, of shoreline, because I mean, if you go looking for like highlights in set two, uh, the down with disease into, into Spock's brain, I, I guess it yeah. would be weird though, to know that Bob Weir is like sitting on the side of the stage as they're singing Spock's brain, which has got to be one of the weirdest fish songs. You know, everyone's, <laughs> everyone takes a lyrical turn, but it doesn't really make any sense at all. So I think they were just kind of in, we're waiting for Bobby mode. And maybe that, maybe that did impact kind of the vibe of night one at shortline. I, I wonder if emotions were starting to really catch up to them. Um, maybe a little bit of exhaustion, but probably the emotions they're at the, the final destination um maybe you know running through their minds what are we going to do how are we going to close this thing out um they've got bobby coming out um to the two i think this is a fine show but it's it's nothing spectacular there's there's very little of note here other than the bobby sit-in which is just okay for me um but the, the two things that stand out to me just in terms of you know worth discussing um it's interesting to hear you justin say that thing about trey you know uh bobby just kept calling out songs because what i was going to say even before you mentioned that was um i get the feeling that like el paso and west la fadeaway were probably bobby's choices um he sometimes has a little bit of an oddball taste in terms of like what's going to get played and whatnot bobby always also strikes me as a guy who he's like I'm going to do things my way. Like we're going to, we're going to do this my way, right? Like I'm going to come out on stage and we're going to play and I'm Bob Weir and it's just going to go this way. Um, and so whether it's here and they're like, Hey Bobby, let's play. And maybe Trey's like, man, let's like play playing in the band or something like that. And Bobby's like, okay, El Paso, like, you know, (laughs) um, and they just got to go along with it or whatever. Um, so you know, it's fine. The other thing, uh, so Spock's brain I've, I've documented on our show before, 
do not like the song, uh, which is crazy considering I have seen 20% of the performances of this song. I saw the <laughs> next, why. after this show, I saw the next two versions in 2003 and 2019. Don't like the song at all. Um, so the the fact that it appears in the show really does nothing for me. Um, Matt, well, we're going to have to I break but, up. <laughs> so, so, so have words. Let's do it. Drop the, drop the gloves or whatever. But I say, I saw girls, girls, girls in Vegas in 04 and I'm not uh, a girls, girls, girls stand. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to brag about it. Just in fact, I would strike that from my stats if I were you. Uh, <laughs> and one thing to me about the, the Bob Weir <laughs> sit in, I, I hadn't listened to this in a long time until today. And Trey sounds so much like Trey in these solos, which which makes sense, right? Except when you think about Fare Thee Well and like how much he didn't sound like Trey, it's like amazing. It's like El Paso played with like Trey soloing kind of like to Reba or something. It's like yeah. it, none of it really sounds like a Grateful Dead cover. It's just him kind of playing along to the song. Jonathan, you you seem to be wanting to say something. Yeah, I've got two points to that. I mean, for fairly well, Trey spent the bulk of the year prior to that studying, modifying his rig, uh, listening to the way Jerry played things through the years and kind of, you know, following his path of change and um and so that's why he sounded so different there but also el paso is not a grateful dead song bobby's been playing it for years but um i think we saw uh at i've Delfest, heard the grateful dead play it Mar- though, yeah yeah sure. but uh <laughs> we saw at delfest we saw marty stewart's you know, playing and he was like yeah you know we w- went and played this show somewhere and somebody wanted us to play this song and i was like okay it only has four thousand words but okay here we go um and so anyways it's 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 a crazy like story song it's a lot of fun it is uh, in one of the best grateful dead shows ever at one of the like most debated slots um <laughs> uh, that I've ever seen one of the most complained about positions in a show and this could be like number two on that damn all right well you're gonna have to tune into the next episode of broke down podcast to find out what show that is oh they know <laughs> that, that, that kind of feeds my thing of Bobby which is like you know they play dark star and Jerry gives Bobby the nod of like okay Bobby what's coming up and he's like El Paso <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it there I do too he, I do too he loves the cowboy shit um but yeah, also, it was is this like a Trey's kind of sitting in this, you know, playing with with Bob Weir for the first time, and you know, playing Grateful Dead songs with with Trey as the, and on the lead guitar. I'm just saying, there's something something happening there. But um, but that took like you know 15 more years to, to develop into yeah. a thing. Um, the sand, man, again, the sand in this show to me was the was the the most notable because it was like so slow but then it got it was like really intense but really slow um it just seems to be the whole the whole theme for this show but let's talk about the last show because then we get to the last show the next day saturday night shoreline 10 7 um justin how did this stack up compared to all the other shows you listened to from the past two years (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, within the realms of Fall 2000, I, I personally, I think that Night Two at Shoreline is is like in the top five of of all the shows of Fall 2000. A part of that is just because I've heard it literally a million times. It's probably one of my top three, top four shows uh, ever listened to, just because it was the end of of one 
of 1.0 and I, I just kind of missed fish a lot in <laughs> in uh, 2001 and 2002 so this is the show that I went to uh I think it's, it almost feels like uh, like a, a best man standing up at a wedding reception, giving uh, giving us a, a big, important speech. And he's just trying not to cry. It's like the emotions had to have been yeah flowing out of them. And in that Paluska interview with Tom on Under the Scales, he mentioned that after the show, the band just shut themselves in a room for like an hour. And, you know, who knows what they were talking about. Uh, this is an interesting uh, point. You know, we talk about how they made the announcement, we're going to take a break in, when they were in Vegas uh, the week before. But that Entertainment Weekly had come out, like, before the tour started. So, it, you know, it was kind of the early age of, of the internet. So everyone wasn't an expert on everything all at once because of the phone in their pocket. And I think some people did learn about this hiatus at the Vegas show, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that information was out there. But I feel like the the slowdown uh, in this October wrap-up to fall tour probably had more to do with, with yeah, the conflicted emotions and will this be the end or won't this be the end? And I think that was actually more of a question mark than maybe the public was was kind of allowed to, to to know. I definitely think if you look back at the interviews at the time, you know, pr- up prior and especially after, you know, uh, they definitely weren't sure. They were like, oh yeah, well, we're, we figured we'd come back probably, but you never know what's going to happen. I mean, lots of bands have taken a break and never made it back because somebody wasn't there or what have you. So, I mean, it was definitely a venture into the unknown sort of situation. But it's a solid fish band concert. Um, they hit a lot of big fish notes, you know. Uh, I went straight to Hydrogen, and it pretty much checks out. Pog um, is uh, fun as hell. It's not extended, but it's fun as hell. Um, they had a lot of songs to get through, I think. There's a lovely finish on that fee. Um, gin gets good hose. It's not over long. Uh, if you the glide's not perfect, but if you compare this glide to Coventry, it's fucking perfect. <laughs> um, so that's really not fair at all. Hey, you know all all glides shall be compared to Coventry and made to shine. Um, <laughs> set two, I mean, it's a standard twist. It's kind of groovy. Then it basically ends, and and then this is interesting. So if you look at the tracking on Live Fish, we get. Do we get a 2001 extended intro or like a extra ending on Twist? Who cares? It's like an ambient kind of jammy kind of thing into 2001. That's a lot of fun. I'll tell you who cares, the internet. (laughs) (laughs) To hell with the internet. Um, I've been there. It's quite a place. Um, I wouldn't go back. Oh, yeah. And the tweezer, there's this great, like, I like the tweezer. And there's this bit at, like, 12 minutes, Paige and Mike get into this great interplay, which leads to the dark part on the end, the back end of the tweezer that is just, it's a heavy couple of minutes uh, before it closes out and lands in Velvet Sea, which is beautiful. And then uh, I want you guys to talk more about it. So I'll simply say the Bowie rips, in my opinion. And um, and then you enjoy myself. What a way to go out with a nice big vocal jam for RJ and Brad. To you got you to gotta close with that. I, I, I just want to say that um, the Bowie, so this is the third Bowie in five shows. And do you, <laughs> do you think there was something to that? Like it was, it was feeling like a thing that, that was... 
something to cling to because three three times in five nights at that point when like you mentioned matt they were on a promoting an album playing new songs and had like so much more material and they they played the you know bowie really well three times in five shows i just think that's like notable and i wonder if there was some kind of emotional connection to that that particular song um going into the last night but that that was kind of my only uh, addition to what Jonathan said. I don't know, Matt, if you have thoughts on that or the show in general. There's there's parallels between this show and the last night of Coventry. Um, they played Mike's Hydrogen Groove early in the show. They played Glide, uh, obviously kind of a love letter to the fans. Um, they played uh, Waiting, um, and they played Bowie, it being a, an important song. And I think the, the big differentiator is they made the amazing decision here to close with You Enjoy Myself, which Trey has called the national anthem of Fish. I think had they not done it here, they probably would have done that at Coventry. Um, something tells me they didn't want to end with the same song both of the times that they went away, but You Enjoy Myself is the perfect solution. Um, they just, when they, uh, when, when it, at Coventry, I think Trey wanted to find some bigger statement and he picked Curtain With and it kind of wasn't the right statement to make. You Enjoy Myself really was... It, if they'd done it right, it would have been. But It, it could have, it could have, other than the, re- the repetition thing. It's like, oh, this is what you guys you know, went away with last time or whatever. Um, but Tweezer gets featured here, Tweezer being such an important song in their history. So there's there's a lot of uh, parallels in terms of the thought process of like, if we're gonna, if it's gonna be the last show, what do we need to include there? What makes sense? Um, this show to me, which once again, I've listened to it a million times as well, um, refresher for, for folks who weren't in the know back then, this was the first show ever released by Live Fish. Um, when they announced in the, the fall of 2002, that Fish was coming back. They were they were playing at Madison Square Garden. They also launched the live Fish service and the the concept of releasing every single show. Uh, at that point, the benchmark was within 48 hours of the show. Um, they released this show as like a test of the service to stress test their servers and their, their bandwidth and everything like that. Um, so everybody had a great sounding soundboard of it, uh, you know, for a, for a long time. And this is 18 years ago now. To me, this show like there's not much in it that is very like um superlative there's a lot of really solid playing but when you take the show as a whole it's almost like you know a like it's it is good there's there's i don't think it's a bad show and i don't think it's even a mediocre show i think it's a very good show and i think it's an example of how fish not to take a a shot at the dead but like the dead infamously blew it on big nights whereas fish has kind of done a great job of make of of doing a a great show on big nights can i reply to that real quick yes please because this i i said about the last show that you know fish demonstrably not like is not the grateful dead and you're making my point again yeah. for me. So I, I, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. They nail it. Um, but this is almost like if you were to look at like I, the best term I can come up with in my mind is like, a, is like greatest hits. Like if you were to say, all right, fish in the year 2000, wrapping up 1.0, put together like a great encapsulation of where they are at that point. It, they did a great job of that. And I think it's for that reason, I think it's a great show to play for kind of newbies um, to fish 
because you it's not too out there in, in any regard it's it's very very kind of by the book but great playing great flow very representative song selection and flow throughout the show um it's just like it's 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 a fish show and they did such a great job of, of putting a bow on 1.0 with it i think and after all of the like tray chatter that we that we heard over the the prior part of the tour it's interesting that you know they no one says a word if i'm remembering it correctly uh, throughout this entire show you know on uh, in phoenix he's telling people to slap themselves in the face and make passionate love to to your neighbor next to you and he went on that long colonel forbin's narration in in vegas so uh you know, I, I really do feel like he was just trying to get out there, play a rock solid show to, to, to finish things up. One totally random parallel between the end of 1.0 and the end of 2.0 is like Mike makes this tweezer jam in the end. He gets into this, you guys talked about kind of like a, almost like a little bit of a heavy metal feel or like it's kind of a dark kind of a kind of, he almost sounds like a little bit angry. And my favorite part of, of 2.0 is that June stretch of 2004, the, the, the first little leg of the summer shows because Mike is playing out of his mind mind and he didn't want to quit he didn't want the band to quit uh like it literally sounds like mike is kind of angry at times and i'm probably yeah uh you know projecting but i got a little bit of that vibe at the end of this tweezer but yeah you could look up fish in a dictionary and this would in my opinion be be a pretty rock solid show to represent the band this would make a good live album if they hadn't already released a live one so another live one Another live one, a live one again. Um, All right. Well, so guys, we're here. We are at the end of of 1.0, which is crazy. Um, After listening back to these shows, any any uh, reflections or realizations you guys have had uh, from listening back to these? Jonathan, do you want to start? I, you know, I I miss fish. Uh, Can we have fish concerts again? Nope. I think that that's probably the big no. Yeah, I know the answer is no, but uh, that's probably the biggest thing. Like, I don't, I probably don't listen to, well, I don't listen to a lot of fish all the time, uh, and so this is a nice excuse to go deep and listen to a whole bunch of it. And and, and you know, I I just miss, I miss this band first of all. That fish has never been like this since they were like this, which is a you know to their credit in many respects, but, um, and I feel honored to have seen them at this time. Uh, but yeah, they were, they were as, as the flyer I got at my first show says they were a really cool band and, um, and they remain one, but this different, just different. Uh, so I really like this version of the band and these shows give you a nice picture of it. So I think this is a very interesting, you know, part of the band's uh, career to inspect. We did a lot of work looking at Big Cypress last year, and the interview that um, Tr- Tom did with John Paluska was fascinating to me because he was one of my favorite people that we had on After Midnight. He had he had such great stories and such great context. But to continue that on, when he kept talking about what happened after Big Cypress and what led to the end of this 
phase of the band is just fascinating to me. So I think that's it, 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 this whole period deserves evaluation. On a more personal level, when I look at this, my big reaction is like, I can't believe this was 20 years ago. I mean, like <laughs> the end of this first phase of Fish, I was starting college. I was getting into the band. I mean, there's like... It, you know, maybe it's just the pandemic that has my t sense of time scale gone silly, but simultaneously seems like forever ago and just yesterday uh, that all this was was happening. So I really, uh, I really enjoyed looking back at uh, this this one week of shows. I, th I think it's fascinating. Yeah, Matt took my first point in that I can't believe it was fucking two decades ago, right? <laughs> Listening back. October 2000 doesn't seem that far away, but, you know, looking back, like, wow, that's really far. Um, but also, you know, what I, what I took into account was this was the end of a really long run for the band. You know, I mean, 83 officially, right, was a start. 17 years. The last few summers they'd been in Japan you know, they were in Europe in 97, 98, 96, whatever. Um, it, they were, they were big time and, uh, they were spreading themselves thin. So I, I don't think we can fault them for where they were. Um, and we have to realize that they were still really fucking good. They were, they were providing what we wanted. Um, and, uh, going back to this, forcing ourselves to go back to this, um, it was really enjoyable and I, I don't, I'll, I'll go back again. You know what I mean? Like this is, it's, it's really fun, good music and it's awesome. It's fucking amazing that we can listen to them from recent and then go back this far and, and see where they've changed and see where they're the same. Um, and, and also hear the same songs. So, um, you know, I, I, whatever, I thankful, I guess. It's, it's really interesting. You know, having listened to all the shows from 99 and, and 2000, uh, I think there is still a lot of of changing in the band's playing and and their improvisational style that occurs uh, from summer of '99. Really starts to change in fall and winter of '99 as they are getting geared up for Big Cypress. And like John Paluska said, like like you know we heard in After Midnight. I mean that was the that was the Mount Everest of their careers playing Big Cypress. And I think that. You know, the end of 1.0 was just like a long lasting wave crashing against the shore. And it started in Halloween of 96 when they were searching for our, right, what's our next move going to be? You know, 94, 95, we've, we've figured out this chaotic, incredibly energetic jamming style. We, we need something different. And it carried through right on through the end of 1.0. But I think that, yeah, they were tuckered out because they had been working so hard for literally 17 years in a row. That was part of it. I think a big part of it for for the band, especially for Trey, since he is just, you know, a nonstop creative guy. What do you do after after Cyprus? You know, they focused on Farmhouse, the album in the spring of 2000. Summer 2000 tour is off the charts, steady and consistent. And fall 2000s pretty dang steady and consistent too. It's not that they weren't playing great. I think it was more a question of, all right, what do we, what do we do now in this ever evolving band? We've, we've kind of done a lot of things on the list and maybe we're not a hundred percent sure in which direction to go. So it has been really interesting to kind of hear that play out show by show uh, in the end of, of 1.0. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, 
it's crazy. It's crazy to me that we can go back and, you know, you can dial up any show you want to. The technology is is amazing. If you hear something in, in one, one song, Hey, that reminds me of uh, this 925 tweezer reminds me of uh, the 1216 tweezer. You can pop back and forth. We're, we're so lucky to, to be fans of a band that is so well-documented. And if anyone hasn't heard any late 1.0 in a while, go back and listen to anything. I mean, there's just so, so much great, great stuff to, to dig into, but uh, even yeah, on the last night, of their last show of this first, you know, half of their existence, they still were able to knock it out of the park. <laughs> RJ, you got to give us your thoughts. Um, well, I, I don't, I don't go back to these shows very much because I, I don't think they're that good, but it, it was, it was fun <laughs> to hear these highlights because there are, that's where we want to end this. Done. There, there are highlights, <laughs> but I actually want to end. I want to, well, first I want to say thank you, Brad. I was hoping no one would ask my thoughts, but Thank you. Um, I want to say thank you to Justin for joining us um, for this very special episode and part of this broader collaboration. So thank you, Justin, um, for for thanks for having me. Yeah, it was fun to have you back, and we'll, we should do this again um, soon. I, I, I want to end with a story that we got via email. Um, Tom and I got a, an email from a guy named Ben, and it's jumping forward to the summer of two thousand two. And this guy, Ben, was working at the Lake Placid Marina and giving boat tours. And his boss called him after hours to ask if he could work a last-minute private tour of Lake Placid. And he said he couldn't because he was already on his way to Saratoga to accompany his high school girlfriend to a Dave Matthews Band concert. He wasn't really into Dave Matthews (laughs) Band at the time. He was very big into Fish and the Dead. Anyway, it turns out the private boat tour was for Fish. The four band members walked down the street from the Mirror Lake Inn where they were staying to take the boat tour under the name Gordon, guessing they were in town as a getaway across the pond to discuss getting back together. My boss and the guy who ended up giving the boat tour had no idea who they were until I returned on Monday to work, and they said, yeah, it was four guys from Vermont, a band, not really sure, and the guy who drove the boat said, yeah, nice guys, I think they were in a band. Anyway, you can imagine my feeling at that point. The irony of being at a concert I wasn't really into and missing out on the private tour boat gig of a lifetime. After we figured it out, the guy who drove them hit up the band and got return tickets to the got tickets to the return show at MSG. He wasn't even a fan, but he liked to party. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the story right doesn't end at this point. I just thought that was such a great uh, memory because we got a lot of memories from fans about the fall 2000 tour. But I like this setting up the the return in 2.0. And what a man! What a what a sad day to come back to work to realize that you missed giving a private boat tour to fish. So Ben, thanks Don't. for sending that in and um, and and leaving us on a on a good note. So. That's a That's good read, feeling. RJ. That was a good. That was a good. Thank read. you. Thanks yeah. so much. I practiced. All right. Well, <laughs> Justin, thank you so much for joining, and thanks everybody for listening. And we will see you all back here very soon. Is there anything else we need to say? Anyone? Uh, I think you have something to say. Don't. I was hoping someone else would say something. Oh, send your compliments to Jonathan. Send your um, detrimental comments to Brad, please. And uh, we'll see you all soon. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Keep on rocking.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everyone. It's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast.